I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Natsai Adre Chiesa, founding director of the multidisciplinary design agency, Faber Futures. Her practice operates at the intersection of nature, technology, and society, incorporating knowledge from design, craft, engineering, and science. Faber Futures has produced a broad spectrum of work in the realms of fashion, art direction, and fine art, and is perhaps best known for its role in developing new techniques for dyeing textiles using pigment produced by microbes. I met with Natsai in December of last year at her office in Peckham, where we talked about, among other things, her experience of culture shock as a Zimbabwean studying architecture in Edinburgh, and her discovery of fashion as a space for her to possess and explore her own ideas as a student. We touch on Chiesa's shift away from speculation and towards practice in her establishment of Faber Futures, and what it means to run a type of practice for which there is no blueprint. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I want to try and understand at what point you decided to kind of move away from architecture and into the world of fashion, essentially. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I would say we're not in the world of fashion, um, but we'll get to that because you're quite right. You're on the right path (laughs) as to what happened. Um, So in in my second year of architecture uh, at Edinburgh, I I kind of discovered fashion. And I think the reason why that happened is because I struggled uh, a little bit to understand the cultural context of that architectural education as it was happening in real time. So two things happened. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe, moved here with my family, um, finished um, high school, uh, went to Edinburgh, uh, and that's where my culture shock actually happened. <laughs> Took about three years of a delayed culture set. Um, and, and, that, and I can rationalise it now, but at the time, Things were just happening at me. Um, the course was happening at me. Architectural theory was happening at me. Um, I did not have uh, a cultural anchor to just subminimally kind of absorb it and just know it. What I now know is that, you know, it's, it's because I was learning the history of Western architecture. 
um, and all of the implied um, knowledges that had nothing to do with my cultural um, upbringing or understanding, in spite of the fact that we, you know, I'm from a country that was under the British Empire, mm. um, so, which was in, in some ways um, the the reason why the culture shock happened late, because for all intents and purposes, everything was the same until it wasn't the same. Uh. <laughs> um, so to, to hold on to something that felt like mine and something I felt I could um, inhabit and own um, and understand and craft, uh, I just sort of fell into fashion. Um, and so I didn't spend my um, money that I, you know, I had to go to work to sustain my education. Um, I spent it on fashion magazines, not on architectural publications. Um, and so I became a bit of a pariah, as you'd expect, um, in, in, in the institution. Um, wrote my dissertation actually on uh, deconstructivism and fashion and architecture mm -hmm. uh, and my tutor hated me for that <laughs> <laughs> at the time certainly it, it felt like I was just mapping interests um, and becoming extremely passionate about them and I was reading about everything that was happening in East London while I was in Edinburgh and just like wishing I could just drop out and mm. go there and and understand it firsthand but I could not do that because my wonderful parents <laughs> insisted that I finish my degree. I'm very grateful for that. Um, so just just as I was finishing my, my dissertation at um, Edinburgh, I started to apply for all the fashion courses, mm. London, fashion, uh, London College of Fashion, Central St. Martins. I applied for a tailoring course um, and everybody kept saying you need to do a fashion. Um, actually, so I, I got feedback that I needed to do... Um, uh, what do you call it? A foundation course. And I thought I've just done four years of architecture. <laughs> um, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and clearly I can't just, you know, land uh, on the MA fashion program um, uh, either. So uh, material futures or textile futures at the time uh, sounded very interesting. It was about um, technology, culture and, um, and, uh, and materiality. And materiality, I think, was something I, I cared deeply about uh, from my architectural education. So I, I went with it. Um, and what was fascinating about that process was sort of two or three weeks into the course, I realized that it wasn't fashion that I was interested in. It was scale. It was how these things interact um, with different outlets, whether it's architecture, whether it's fashion. Uh, but that... Uh, where architects could not prototype realistically at scale um, and so remained very much in the speculative realm, uh, working with textiles suddenly became that immediate uh, space for prototyping and, and, and knowing, not theoretically, but knowing by doing. Mm. Um, and that's, that was a revelation um, to me, to be able to prototype in, 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 in real terms mm -hmm. um, from that perspective. And I'm sure that um, there are other ways in which um, architects can prototype in, in real terms, but there's something fundamental about being able to build something, test it at scale, mm -hmm. um, receive, even if you want to, market feedback to be able to improve upon it within very short time scales. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that really fascinating, but um, sort of discovered quite early on that technology was this massive driver for where design was going more generally and that it would have massive consequences. Um, digital, I think, technology at the time was still very much um, what most people were focusing their minds on. Um, 
but I sort of discovered this emerging discipline of science uh, called synthetic biology, which was this notion that we could engineer at a molecular level um, what outcomes can emerge from living systems. Um, and that sort of blew my mind, mm -hmm. um, that we weren't talking about, right, as an example, um, digging uh, aggregate out of the ground to build a building, but that we might um, manufacture with organisms that can uh, self-replicate and assemble on site um, mm -hmm. using uh, nutrients and uh, not much in the way of energy. Okay. It's so interesting, <clears throat> I think, getting onto this kind of topic of biodesign. Mm -hmm. um, because for me, there's different positions in which the designer can uh, work from. And one is kind of as the as the scientist to a certain degree. Mm. And I know that you're a designer in residence at UCL with, is it John Ward? Yeah. And I think that's kind of where you first potentially became a kind of scientist, where you maybe first put on the white lab coat. Definitely. Uh -huh. I, uh, I'm definitely not a scientist. Um, but be began to work in the yes. specific environment of the laboratory? Yes. And so there, there, that's one position I want to kind of put out there. Mm. And then there's this other position, which is the designer as a kind of uh, provocateur or even storyteller. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to start there um, in, in relation to your final project at Central St. Martin's, um, which was called Design Fictions, Post-Humanity in the Age of Synthetics. Um, and as I understand it, what you were making were a series of speculative provocations to kind of um, galvanize certain conversations around designing with nature, essentially, or designing with biology. But they're completely fictitious. Mm -hmm. You're trying to, I'm just reading from the description now, but you're trying to provoke debate and dialogue into the life science industry and the appropriation of life whilst also making us reconsider the role of the designer whose manufacturing process is likely to take place in a laboratory in 2075. So <laughs> it's interesting because you're projecting into the speculative future, prognosticating about what the designer will be. And at the same time, you're propelling yourself into that state by joining UCL and, and working in the laboratory all of a sudden. Um, the reason why I laughed out loud is because 2075 was obviously a um, massive underestimate of how quickly uh -huh. that would actually happen. Um, are we doing it at scale? Maybe it's not 2075, maybe it's, you know, 2030 by the time we start to actually see this become ubiquitous, right? Mm. Um, but you're right that there was this um, speculative questioning space emerging next to practice. And that was a very deliberate choice because I felt limited by the speculative um, and part of that um, thesis was, uh, you know, a, a fictitious story that I wrote um, about, you know, the kinds of conditions that might emerge when subcultures are, um, you know, tied to DIY bio, that sort of thing. Um, and, and that, yes, you could use um, material prototypes to tell those stories too. But for us to really um, understand what's at play, it felt necessary to engage in some kind of practice. And of course, there was no blueprint for this. Um, and so 
the question was how could I, as a non-scientist, um, non-trained, without any affiliation to any institution, have access to um, to laboratory space that and, and develop a practice that's safe. Mm. Um, what do you mean safe? <laughs> how do I not? kill anyone in the process (laughs) with pathogenic (laughs) microbes this became an important question because if you know when we're talking about the speculative realm um with um synthetic biology uh, and biological systems um biosafety is such an important um part of that so for you know my perspective was that this part of the work had to happen in the institutional framework um, and also that it would legitimise um, that very sort of um, edge uh, practice. Um, it, it couldn't be something I'm doing in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't feel like a smart way <laughs> mm-hmm. of um, growing the, the practice. So I reached out to Professor John Ward, who um, is you know one of the sort of old, old school scientists uh, who is still incredibly curious and wants weird things happening in their labs. So John gave me access to his lab um, and and actually one organism. Um, it was uh, Streptomyces silicolum. And this organism, in science, it's used um, really for antibiotic research. It's very well characterised. Um, and I guess you and I would have experienced it in nature uh, in fact, not not necessarily even um, in what we class as nature in the woods, but um, the smell of rain comes from um, streptomyces that are giving off geosmin in the soil, um, and it gives beetroot its flavour. So there's this all you know this other cultural layer mm. that we we know this organism exists not because we know the organism exists, but because we've interfaced with um, you know it in some other way. Um, and it produces a pigment. So John was like, you're a textile designer. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you'll find this interesting. Um, and I have to say that I, initially I was a little bit you know, disappointed um, that the designer was coming into the lab to work with colour. That felt so tropish. Uh. Um, and, and especially because actually I wanted to work with um, uh, organisms that were calcifying um, aggregate and turning it into stone, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and or, so, you know, the, initially I was quite reluctant to um, delve into the project. And then when I, when I started to grow this organism, and you could just see it literally over a period of three to five days, just pumping dark navy blue, that was really captivating. So the question became... I'm a designer with no background in science. I know the recipe to be able to grow this organism and for it to have these performative qualities. But how does my design education, um, the way that I see things, um, start to feed into this? What do I care about that this is even important? Um, What's going on on this Petri dish? And I realised very quickly that, yes, the role of the designer in this space is to intersect um, not just the design thinking, but prototyping methodologies with um, these very organic growth conditions and mechanisms. Um, and that, that was about fabricating new tools to be able to work with biology. That was about um, changing design process. I, I think you know, with, with architecture, you receive a brief, you know what you're, potentially you know what you're, you're, you're building before you start doing the research. Whereas 
with, with this process, you couldn't allow that to guide you um, because um, you ended up making fundamental thinking errors in wanting the biology to perform as the industrial counterpart performs. Mm. A very good example of this is uh, right early on with the work um, and for about a year into um, doing this research, I was growing Streptomyces sedicolor, extracting the pigment and trying to screen print with it onto textiles, um, which was not brilliant uh, because I still you know, needed to use mordants. It wasn't terrible, uh, a terribly uh, effective coloration process. Um, it faded pretty quickly. Uh, and I kind of just got stuck a little bit because I, I just thought if I could just get this pigment and, and drop it into uh, this process, you know, that we know very well how to work with and have the toolkit and have the, the framework of thinking, we have the cultural references, um, we've got the best examples already, then, you know, uh, this is going to move forwards. Um, until I came back to the lab after an exhibition um, and, and I just said, maybe I should just grow the bacteria directly onto the textile and see what happens. And that was it. That was the pivot point because suddenly we had this organism living on the textile over a period of seven days and, um, you know, sort of secreting all of this pigment uh, onto the textile. We had quite a, you know, dark, dark colours um, emerging and they were colour fast and we weren't using any mordants or chemicals to fix them. And mm. the amount of water that was being used to carry out this process was um, as much water as required by the organism to live, which you know, in textile dyeing terms means up to 500 times less water than, um, you know, ordinarily um, practice in industry. And that's when I knew that there's something here, there's something bigger than what was a benign sort of um, experimental process for me to understand the tools of biology. And that once you started to grow the textile, so sorry, once you started to grow the um, bacteria onto the textile, Massive questions come into play, like how do you mediate matter when you can't see it? Because those uh, cells are pretty much invisible, right, to the naked eye. That's, that's about tools, that's about fabric manipulation. So that, mm -hmm. that's where really design comes into play with these processes, mm -hmm. is designing the growth conditions to be able to control the outcome, but also recognising that there's only so much you can control. And so part of the role of the designer is to establish um, what that aesthetic realm is, given that you're collaborating with, um, with nature um, and, and pushing that in a way that um, allows us to discover uh, what the potential spaces are rather than coming in with a predetermined idea of what petroleum age chemistry can give us and therefore that's what we're trying to, to mimic. step back I want to go before um, we follow this progression into the establishment of Faber Futures and that is to do with um, 
the world of forecasting. So I noticed that you worked for a company called LSN Global, um, the Future Laboratory there. And this is a subscription-based uh, insights platform um, that documents new consumer behavior and key industry trends. And then you also worked very briefly for a trend forecasting company called Franklin... Franklin Till. No. Okay. I worked... Well, I, I knew Caroline. Okay. Yeah, I never there was this... <laughs> last night, I was looking through um, presentations you've given, and there was one... Oh, I gave a presentation for them. For them. Yeah, Caroline was like, Nat, sorry, we can't do this thing in Cape Town. Can you go for us? I was okay. like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> it was so interesting. Oh. Um, and I, I can sense there's maybe a little bit of an aversion around talking about the world of trend forecasting, maybe? No, um, actually, I'm very surprised that you picked up on it because um, it's always been front and center okay. in my mind that um, there are so many market dynamics that govern how stuff gets made and what it becomes, and that um, if you want to look at the supply chain of, um, of products uh, and, and the, the, if you like, the service supply chain of mm -hmm. products, uh, and I would say marketing is very much on that um, uh, uh, trajectory and that trend forecasting is a major part of what gets made by whom and when. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then when we're saying that we are going to completely change the system over which um, stuff gets made, then then I say, okay, who are we designing for? Um, and and that there are people who spend a lot of time trying to understand who they're designing for. Okay, so let me say that again. Um, the trend forecasting, uh, I, I, so I worked at LSN Global, mm -hmm. uh, which is a future laboratory um, uh, company that provides insights and trends to um, industry. Uh, and I was there as an intern, actually, while I was studying on textile futures. Right. And I, and I realized quite immediately that the work that I was interested in at Textile Futures, how do we re redesign and with the living, mm -hmm. uh, was going to have to respond to some of the market conditions mm -hmm. that trend forecasters dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis. In other words, um, by the time we arrive at the product space, from an organism performing a particular function, whether it's mycelium growing um, into chairs, um, there's an end user, uh, and that end user has already been categorized and is very much sort of, um, I want to say, preyed upon by the marketeers. Uh -huh. um, so how would these worlds interact? Uh, and I've always been really interested in that research that happens in trend forecasting, and now it's you know, with, with um, the explosion of data, it's, 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 um, it's very precise. And then how would that govern and drive what is designed at a molecular scale? Mm -hmm. A great example of that, and it's not a difficult leap to make, is particularly in Europe, um, there is heightened expectation now that companies are producing products that have some sustainability credentials. Whether or not they're, they're good or they work is one thing, but that they can demonstrate that they care mm -hmm. about environmental issues, about ethical issues, etc. And so if you are a synthetic biologist thinking about a new company to start, um, you might want to tap into that knowledge 
um, what is driving this trend? Uh, how long is this trend supposed to last? How does this trend evolve into culture? Because by the time it's just culture, it's just the norm. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and I don't think there's anything particularly unique about a company like the Future Labor- Laboratory um, because we've been doing this. Mm. Um, you know, Boston Consultancy Group, mm. uh, McKinsey uh-huh. uh, provides those services to different sectors too. Right. Um, but what I found fascinating was understanding how at a very sort of accessible level as, a, and a, as an independent designer, mm. I could also look at trend forecasting coming from an organization like the Future Laboratory and think, huh, okay, that's interesting um, how we are going into turbulent times. Mm. How might that, mm. <laughs> you know, at the time that was the trend, um, how might, might that interact with how we're thinking about a society's needs in 10 to 20 years mm. as relates to um, materials? Um, and does this have any bearing on how we approach um, uh, synthetic biology, for example? Mm. I just want to read a few this may be kind of off topic, but there are example kind of questions that companies like um, Franklin Toll would be asking, mm-hmm. which I think align with um, practices such as yours that are future facing and um, looking to kind of um, shift the frame through which we understand design and its, its possibilities. Um, so I'm just gonna read a few mm-hmm. questions out. Mm-hmm. Um, so are we using our natural resources effectively uh, how are the defining characteristics of organic materials changing the predictabilities of color? Are vegans satisfying their desire for indulgent treats without compromising their morals? I mean, there's, <laughs> these are actually they're, they're fascinating questions and they're, they're at once very deep, but also um, very marketable. And um, they're kind of inherent to uh, driving the market forward. And I think it's this intersection between <clears throat> forecasting and um, I guess to a certain extent being a kind of um, oracle to a certain degree. Um, and then on the other hand, um, performing what it is that you're forecasting. Because to me, the, the kind of the business that you started, mm-hmm. it seems to straddle those two ends where it once it's kind of, it's showing what could be. Mm-hmm. It's kind of anticipating a near future scenario. And then on the other hand, you are, you're participating in that speculation by putting on the white lab coat and testing and iterating alongside scientists like John Ward. Mm-hmm. And so to me, there's this fascinating um, dichotomy. And I just wonder to what extent you see yourself as a trend forecaster uh, versus a kind of um, bio designer, or are those two things inseparable to some degree? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm a trend forecaster. Um, I am interested in futures, and I'm interested in how we actually structurally make changes that can bring forwards futures that are um, more equitable, um, preferred even, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and, and being able to find different ways to interrogate the options ahead of us and to understand why they may or may not happen that way. It's not trend forecasting, right? Um, And so my approach is very much to, if you like, um, be what we think it is. Mm 
um, and that it's through this process of doing that you can better articulate how it could work. Uh -huh. Um, it's through the process of doing that you can actually build a network to make it work. Mm. Um, and my, and, and this sort of goes back to that decision to um, put the speculative to one side and start just being it through practice. Uh, this became a necessary um, and a strategic device to get shit done. Mm. Because then you are in the lab making and experimenting and somebody's going to want to understand more which opens up dialogue and conversation and opportunities and you sort of rinse and repeat rinse and repeat so uh, by the time you know we founded Faber Futures um, we I think had so many different examples of the ways in which we've activated something that is not happening anywhere else but if we could prove that it's a model that it could work then it just becomes um, a really great example is the Ginkgo Creative Residency. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that that came about was that I was finishing uh, a residency at Jaspers in Stockholm and looking for my next gig. <laughs> and so I reached out to um, the team, the creative team, Christina Agapakis and myself had been in touch for a while thinking about how we might be able to work together and I sort of said to her well let me do a residency program in your lab which you know in, if you speak to any synthetic biologies in their minds that's like that's the future of the lab mm -hmm. you know uh, and I was very curious um, Jim Agioki a scientist at Cambridge and I had been in touch and he was like oh my god I can't believe you're going to Ginkgo they have robots everywhere <laughs> and he was like you're going to have so much fun so even in 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 his mind that you know that was an example of the future of it all mm. um, and so the question was as a designer what can I gain from being in that environment um, so I went and you know sort of uh, worked on several different projects to understand what it means to be in that environment. Because I couldn't go there and have a tour and be like, I know how it means to be, what it means to be in this environment. And what's really fascinating about the kind of access uh, that I got at Ginkgo wasn't just, here's access to the lab, here's access to you know the autoclave, the incubator. It was, here's access to our Slack channel. Mm. Mm. So you can see everything everyone's talking about every single day. Um, come to our... Um, Monday meetings so that you can hear what the targets are this week. Um, that, that process of doing and being immersed in the environment, yes, it allows you to start to build other speculations, but it also helps you think, huh, what can I do right now? What's possible today, given this circumstance that I find, find myself in? So when I left um, Ginkgo, you know, I had been the guinea pig and I said to Christina, let's do it again um, and let me lead on it. And the reason why we're doing it is because we need more people to have the experience that I just had. Mm -hmm. And we need to bring in more people from different backgrounds um, to the organization so that they can have a better grasp of what design is. Um, it's, it's, so, it's so fascinating the way you're able to kind of pull together the structure of your career of, of your nascent discipline through these existing um, kind of organizations and uh, new businesses and also institutional establishments. You're kind of creating from the ether this framework that will support your practice. 
And this is a perfect example of your partnership or collaboration with Ginkgo Bioworks, um, who it's a, it's a biotechnology startup um, and they design organisms for applications in food and agriculture and consumer products and medicine as well. Mm -hmm. But that you're able to kind of make a space for yourself as a designer in a company like that, while also simultaneously be in a kind of residency program on the other side of the world, while also doing lab work at UCL in London, while also kind of preparing to uh, articulate your practice to a large audience through this TED Talk opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I wonder maybe if we could move there now mm -hmm. as a way of kind of marshalling all these experiences um, to articulate in what was it like a seven minute talk? <laughs> 12 minutes 12 minute of talk hell. <laughs> <laughs> that, that has since, <clears throat> this was in 2017, it since had over a million views, 1.2 million views. And I think for a lot of um, <clears throat> for a lot of designers, especially opportunities like that um, are enough to kind of change. They're kind of, they kind of mark a sea change for the practice. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that experience of having to form and articulate what it is you do in a way that a general audience can understand. Um, and just like the kind of process and method of putting together a TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Um, so the file the other day, it's like, 20 gigabytes really? um, worth of work. Uh -huh. um, so I, I, I wrote, maybe I start there and work back. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote my TED talk while I was at Ginkgo on my residency, <laughs> which is like, here's another project. <laughs> um, and it felt like a great time to tell that story. Um, I, I knew before I went to Ginkgo that it was going to happen. Um, I didn't know what the story was going to be. I got to Ginkgo and I was like, ha, ah, that is the story. Mm. Uh, it is my practice, which represents so many other practices with so many other different kinds of organisms um, and, and um, implications uh, and, and how that is going to interact with um, the uh, computational scale up of what it is to read and write DNA um, for industry. That's the story. Mm. Um, but what do I want the, if you like, um, the ending of that story to be? Uh, and that's the speculation, because we're not there. That doesn't exist yet. Um, that's, what, that's what makes this my story. Um, and the way I think I was able to craft that narrative was just to hold on to um, all of those experiences and the worlds that they lived in, whether it was Yaspis, which is an arts council in, um, or part, part of the arts council in, 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 in Stockholm um, and, and very artistic in its um, sort of seeing of itself, um, to the lab at UCL, um, to my heritage as a Zimbabwean um, Brit, um, and, and understanding how technology plays um, outside of MIT, <laughs> um, outside of Cambridge, um, UK, outside of San Francisco. What about the rest of the majority of the world? Um, and, and starting to think about the ethics of um, the scale up of this emerging industrial revolution. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Well, you're just kind of <laughs> you're mobilizing these these different um, mm. these different ideas around 
how to define a practice, I guess. Yes. In service of, of ultimately this short form, high impact presentation. Yes. Um, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. You work with an amazing team to help you do it. That's what I'm interested actually yeah. in learning more about. So it's not an individual pursuit. There is a team. Um, so, so who helped? Um, my husband flew out to Boston to help me write it. Um, uh, to, to help me fix all the typos. Um, and to take out all of the, you know, crazy... Anyway, that's a side thing. Um, <laughs> He's the kind of sober outside audience. He's just a really good copywriter. <laughs> um, no, he, he came to visit and uh, it was quite a stressful time. So he sort of motivated me to push through with it. Um, I shared it with Tom Knight, the founder of um, Ginkgo. And I was like, what do you think? And he was like, I'm too busy to tell you what I think. <laughs> just um, don't do that TED Talk. And he sent me a link of like this really famous TED Talk, the one that no one should ever do. Uh, I think it's a parody. Uh-huh. Um, look at me, look at me. <laughs> because it has become such a, a kind of known format now that it could easily be parodied. Yeah, it- I mean, it's the whole thing. <laughs> it's just a bit crazy <laughs> like that. Um, um, how not to be a parody of yourself, basically. Mm-hmm. Um and then obviously you work with uh, the editorial uh, and curator, uh, cur- curatorial team at um, TED to help, um, you know, communicate that story effectively in uh-huh. that allotted time. And then you have to practice, practice, practice. And uh, obviously that's tough. Um, it, it, it's such an all-encompassing thing to have to um, do that, yes, it is easy to sort of go... Ted, um, Ted speakers are full of themselves, but um, you know, to share something you care about, uh, you genuinely care about, you've dedicated all your working hours to um, in front of an audience, um, and to do that is no mean feat. Uh-huh. Um, and I think what's more interesting, the better question to be asking is what are the impacts that can be measured um, for sharing ideas at scale in that capacity? Um, and so if I look at um, the body of work that we're developing, I definitely see um, quite interesting platforms for dissemination that emerge that are totally unexpected, but serve a very particular purpose um, and reach a specific audience that would not watch a TED Talk, for example. Um, we recently worked with Capital Records mm. to um, um, creative direct one of their emerging talents um, a, a, a man called Terrell Hines. Uh, he's an incredible mind. Um, he can play like seven different instruments and spent his um, college days at Berkeley in Boston, um, Boston Music College. Um, used to go over the bridge to Cambridge and MIT, Harvard to listen in on lectures. And so he has such a huge interest in um, technology and, and nature. And I guess that's why they reached out to us. Um, but in deciding whether or not this was appropriate work for us to be doing, uh-huh. um, creative directing his entire launch, um, we, you know, I, I, I had obviously had to um, listen to the music, <laughs> um, but also speak with him to understand what's what's driving um, this, um, and then understanding that the the work is going to reach. A demographic that you just couldn't imagine to capture through design, through a TED talk, uh-huh. <laughs> and otherwise, this is popular culture. So, when we're talking about change making, how committed are we to reaching everyone? Um, and so, as a designer, 
what path does the, this take you into in terms of where you feel you can make work to make that impact? Mm. So we're very interested in, um, in some ways, even subverting um, certain platforms to be able to um, press that message forwards about how humans need to reconnect and redevelop a, a relationship with nature uh -huh. um, and that this can live in creative direction. <laughs> it's this kind of Trojan horse model of like disseminating culture and in, in this case you're using the vessel of popular music to kind of spread the gospel potentially of biodesign? Not of biodesign I think but certainly of, um, of nature and how we develop a relationship with it. You know, we're talking about engineering life to save life. Okay, is, as a strategy, what does that actually mean? Um, and can we find uh, more equitable ways of doing this? Uh, not just equitable for humans, but equitable for non-human living mm. organisms too. Um, so I guess, okay, so you, you said Trojan horse. Um, that is the modus operandi. You've, you've found the secret sauce. <laughs> That's literally <laughs> what we do. Um, how do we find different spaces to have this conversation? Uh -huh. um, and can we scale that? Um, it means that, by and large, the work that we're doing is pretty sector agnostic. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I mean, just speaking of other um, spheres spir you've been working mm -hmm. in recently, you were in Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. giving a masterclass on. Um, it's okay. Um, mm -hmm. on, I guess your practice, mm -hmm. um, and hold on, let me just, because I have too many notes here, but maybe you could just summarize what you're doing in Saudi Arabia. It's about mm -hmm. kind of post-oil mm -hmm. future in uh, one of the most oil-rich uh, mm -hmm. regions in the world. And again, there's a kind of op massive opportunity for you to kind of um, reroute uh, or reframe, I guess, what is possible mm. in a place like that. Um, but at the same time, um, I guess what I'm getting at is the fact that you've become a very covetable uh, public speaker. And I mean, the, the way I encountered you is at Design Day mm -hmm. uh, a few months ago in London. Uh, Design the Online Design Magazine put on a kind of symposium of um, speakers who work within design and architecture to kind of, I think, frame a conversation around what's, what's next in design. Mm. And these other speaking engagements and presentations you've been giving are part of this question of what's next, what's on the kind of edge of things. And there's a real palpable hunger uh, from these organizations that have invited you to kind of, I guess, have you stand for the future in some way? <laughs> <laughs> And so, just going back to this Trojan horse model, there's, these are opportunities for you to kind of, I guess, enter the mainstream. But at the same time, <clears throat> is there not a risk of potentially demystifying the process or reducing the kind of sheen of novelty? Maybe the question is like, are you worried about becoming popular or becoming mainstream? Uh, right now we're at year zero. Most people are just coming to terms with the fact that there's a climate crisis. Um, so I think that, yes, there are people who really feel like the time for talking is not now, it's time for action. We just do both, <laughs> mm -hmm. to be quite honest. Um, mm -hmm. You have to tell stories to be able to get more buy-in. 
um, you have to find different ways to tell those stories so that you can get buy-in from across different subsets of society. Uh, globally, you need to be able to, to tell new stories. You have to make way for other people to tell theirs um, too, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think what is myopic is that we live in a world where there's just one story about the future of everything, and it's a very Western view. Um, so going to other parts of the world to understand what their ambitions for the future is, is not just very good homework. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's essential if we're talking about, um, you know, creating equity uh, for the next, you know, 50 to 100 years uh, in the face of climate change. Um, so I, I, I think that storytelling is something everyone has to get really good at. Mm. And that there are different ways of doing this, whether it's speaking, whether it's exhibiting at a Biennale, um, whether it is writing a report to help a company that has huge potential <laughs> figure out how you can help them uh, communicate that effectively. Um, so that, you know, that, that, that tipping point between the speculative and the real mm -hmm. is something you can actually effect. If anything, right now we need alternative stories more than anything else. That's all right. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. <laughs> um, that was a long ramble. No, I hope okay. you have I, content. No. <laughs> You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayroth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Colleen. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Natsayadre Chiesa, and thank you to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.